The binary is whether we're going to keep our democracy or if we're going to go ahead and let authoritarianism come in from this faction. So that reframing, according to that very, very simple binary of Team Who or Team You, that's the choice in 22. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Patty Crane, the co-lead and creative director of Grassroots Messaging Works, a voluntary grassroots group. Patty is an entrepreneur who built and for many years operated a marketing company called Crane Meta Marketing that worked in the nonprofit space mostly, but she retired from that and brought her skills into the progressive political world. We talked about her path there and what marketing tools and techniques she thinks are applicable to grassroots communications for progressives. Patty is a knowledgeable person bringing a lot to a needed area. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Patty Crane with Grassroots Messaging Works. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Patty. Hello. Would, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Patty Crane, and I'm the creative director and co-lead of a voluntary grassroots group that's called Grassroots Messaging Works. Grassrootsmessagingworks.org is our website, and been leading this group for a little bit less than a year. We started up right before Thanksgiving of 2021, but been leading in the grassroots space for five years now. Since I gave up my marketing firm, handed over the keys to my staff of 17 folks and came to California and retired in the middle of 2017 and plunged back in to grassroots organizing and political activities. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on the Great Battlefield. You have such a remarkable record, Mr. Perlman. Well, I have a lot of good guests, if that's what you're referring to. I am curious about that marketing career. Uh, it, it's not easy to build a 17-person marketing firm. What's the origin of that, and how did you land in that world? I lived a blessed life throughout my career. I had so many wonderful opportunities to get a national overview of things, even starting during college when I was the first ever intern at the National Endowment for the Arts in Washington and saw the landscape about supporting the arts, fundraising for the arts, messaging for the arts, developing audiences from a national perspective, in addition to the perspective of being a college kid who got appointed by the governor to be the first voting member of a state arts council back in Iowa. And my first job was in that work. And as a 22 and a half year old kid, I was running around Iowa helping universities and colleges get grants for their arts activities, which were really important. Community arts was really burgeoning back then in 1974, 75. And because of that, I got a great sense of how academic institutions operated. So when I had an opportunity to go into the field of marketing for academic institutions as a consultant and as a creative director, it was just a marvelous opportunity. 
And I took on that work and I did it living in several places around the country, but with a professional firm that was headquartered in Iowa. But then later on, I built my own division in Dallas. And then we were acquired by a Fortune 500 firm, which then gave me access to all the market research capabilities in that Fortune 500 firm. So I added marketing research to my portfolio. I stayed as a vice president of them for eight years. And then I took my team and went out on our own, put my name on the door, Crane Meta Marketing, and had a marvelous, marvelous time working only with nonprofits, primarily colleges and universities, then independent schools, and causes, things like state bar associations that were trying to promote an independent judiciary consortia that were doing fundraising for food problems all over the world, et cetera. So everyone I attracted to my organization, Crane, came in because they believed in our values and we did what we called research-driven values-based marketing. And it was just a blessing. I was involved in many national organizations. I taught for years at the Institute for New Heads of Independent Schools. I taught at the Snowmass Institute for University Presidents. I taught at a wonderful, wonderful group for independent schools in the Crow's Nest Institute, actually up in Kennebunkport, Maine, and another group in Cape Cod. Anyway, I had the marvelous chance to interact with people from all over the country and then internationally and to be a person who helped institutions determine what their actual real-time promise was helped them determine what their distinctives were because they were too busy being too much alike, all of their competitors and colleagues, and instead contrast was more important. We helped them learn that. And then we helped them define and market their category of one. We've raised millions and millions and millions of dollars for educational institution recruited many, many classes to come into universities and to independent schools or affiliates or members for various philanthropic organizations. Generally, later in my career, I got a weird nickname. I got called the board whisperer because one of the things I would do is one day or two day retreats for boards of directors as they were reconsidering strategic plans or revisiting what their promise should be as they would start a new decade or a new era or a new time. So it was really satisfying work and I loved it up to the absolute minute when I made the decision to leave Atlanta where my group was headquartered for 21 years and to move to Los Angeles where both of my adult sons had their families and work in the film industry. So it was a wonderful opportunity to come and deploy my expertise for an area and oh little did I know when I first became re-involved in politics as I had been as a younger person, little did I know how much work needed to be done in the area of messaging. So that's my story. That's a good story and sounds like a good life and a good career. I'm going to ask you some questions that that summary provoked. One is the name of that firm. I, you said Crane Meta Marketing. Yes. That made me wonder what meta marketing is exactly and why you named it that. There's a wonderful term in Greek called metanoia, which means the shared knowing of higher truth. It's, it's used in many religions. But it's not necessarily a religious term, but it does mean that the values that we hold and the things that are inside of us are relevant and important. And as I did the work within the industry, particularly in the early years, and as I was able to explore more and more about the quantitative and qualitative research pools that were available, and then eventually developing my own with my own staff in that area, what I saw was that some of the principles of marketing were doing harm instead of doing good. The principle of using demographics 
to overly define who to be marketed to and what to say to them and how to say it. It was very trendy and very popular in the 80s. And I found that it often sabotaged my mission-driven client organizations from achieving their best and their highest promise because demographics group people by economic tribes. That wasn't healthy. Instead, we worked with psychographics, and most importantly, we worked with shared values. We found that demographics, you know, who drives a Volvo versus who drives a Chevy, would divide people one way. But when you looked at shared values and you said, no, I'm not going to let a family's income or even their zip code define how they see them. Instead, I'm going to explore their values and come to understand why one family is a great match for this small liberal arts college, let's say, whereas another family is a terrific match for this powerhouse large public institution. And we had both of those as as types of clients. When we did that, it was just breakthrough level stuff. We were generating three and four times the response rates with our values-based messaging than others were seeing with their usual demography-driven process. And we realized that nonprofits, which are mission-driven, and depend on emotional affiliation, we realized that it was really, really important to lead with that, keeping in mind all the usual things that one must know and do as it relates to marketing. But that allowed us to carve out a unique position as a boutique firm. Any institution that was running from its values or was conflicted about its values wasn't particularly an appropriate client for us, but institutions who were ready to grapple with them, even when sometimes there were difficult things in their history, if they were founded, say, by a denomination or a political group or something like that, it was perfect timing. And we were able to find ways to come out the other end of that that were powerful and that helped these institutions secure their futures. Was it the message part of it that was based on values that made the difference or did it have anything to do with the targeting based on demographics versus values? Yeah, absolutely both. I found that particularly because targeting technology as we went through the eighties and nineties was getting smarter and smarter, sharper and sharper. You, the software guy know that very, very well. And as it was going, what was happening is too many institutions were getting pulled in to following some of the targeting techniques that were actually narrowing their possible pool of affiliates or donors or or students. And at the same time that what they wanted to do, what they hoped and dreamed to do was to go the opposite, to become more diverse, to be more inclusive, to be more generous. And they were always puzzled why wasn't that working? And we were able to show them that some of the techniques being used in the marketing were actually doing harm. So we were trying to outsmart algorithms before we knew the term algorithm, actually. And it was really a useful technique. And it was a journey. We would always tell any institution that it would be probably two years to two and a half years. Then we would always celebrate if nine months in or 12 months in, we had wonderful results. But they would partner with us and go on a journey with us. And it would tend to revolutionize their self-presentation. So yes, it had an impact on the messaging, but it also had an impact on all of those marketing decisions that you make in order to target your messaging. All those years trying to reach people, are there other insights beyond the sort of values and psychometrics versus demographics that stuck with you? Oh, I I have a term that I call ARD, which if, if I could share it with everyone, um, it would get past so much of the chaff and go right to the wheat. ARD is just the initials for the words authentic, relevant, and differentiating. Essentially, what we learned in our study of the marketplace in general is that 
much of the marketing that was being advised by commercial marketers as institutions more and more looked at marketers who work in the corporate and commercial areas was inauthentic to the values that actually existed within the institution, which is why often the faculties in those institutions would get particularly cranky when they saw a new marketing program come out and they would say, this isn't us, who who are they talking about here? And so our first premise was we had to understand the authentic institution and we did that through deep exploration, a week of focus groups, lots and lots of living on campus, deep opinion research when that was called for. And then we had a process called a review and reflection paper where we fed that back to the institution in a way that they could process on it and work with it and live with it. I still have people tell me 20, 25 years later that they still go back once a year and reread their review and reflection paper and find out how much of it's relevant. Well, it's because it was documenting what the authentic institution really had to offer the world. Second thing is, of course, it has to be relevant to your audience. And if you understand your audience's values, you know what's relevant to them. And it's not always exactly what, say, a a commercially driven advisor might think is relevant. There are deeper, more important things that are relevant to people. And finally, that third thing, A-R-D-D for differentiating, it's important that in many, many areas of messaging, especially in nonprofit messaging, the instinct is to go for comparison. For instance, thinking about universities, they spend their time doing accreditation. And you know what you do when you accredit? You compare yourself to the norms in every possible aspect of institutional life, and comparison is what's important. Furthermore, in academics, in many cases, comparison is important. But what people want to know is what makes you stand apart, not what makes you like everybody else. And so what we go for instead of comparison is contrast. Contrast makes lots of people nervous. It's a problem for lots of people who've been brought up to think that comparison is the way to go, but all the rewards and all the richness lie in contrast. So helping people differentiate and contrast themselves from the pack while never criticizing the pack, by the way, because in the nonprofit world, you don't ever attack another entity, another institution that's in your space. You don't do that. You have to talk about what's good about you. And by the way, ARD is so useful in political messaging and in grassroots work. I suspected you would think so. (laughs) That decision to give up your marketing firm, I think, as you put it, and to retire, you said, pass it to your staff. Can you tell me about that and how you thought that through? Actually, I, I um, had uh, a couple of unexpected health challenges a couple of years earlier and realized that even though I adored my job, that traveling 45 weeks a year wasn't going to be feasible anymore. And that was before I broke my back. And boy, after I broke my back and had to go through six months of rehab, I really found out how difficult it is to be on the road, I'm at flying crown rooms everywhere, as people would say, for the for the Delta Sky Lounge. It's, uh, I did not know that marketing was quite this dangerous. <laughs> Actually, neither did I. When I confronted those challenges, and then in my personal life, um, my own beloved elder sister died very, very suddenly at age 67. And I, who adored my granddaughters and my sons and their wives, thought, if I've only got two more years, do I want to spend it in Terminal A of some airline somewhere? Or would I perhaps rather be in the same city with my beloved family and doing a few other things? And so I I made a relatively rapid decision to say, Many people in my firm had been with me for more than 20 years. Another whole batch of people had been with me for 12 years. 
They had profound experience. They were people I loved and trusted. So it turned out to really be a good decision to do it. After I got to Los Angeles, I ended up getting a whole lot healthier and having a much more enjoyable lifestyle. And so I'm glad I did it when I did it. I'm happy for my former colleagues who are are still in Atlanta and the other places around the country. And I'm happy for me to have taken on these new challenges that I took on after after I got here. So in the end, um, I think it was really good. I and I even had a had a counselor come. I called him my business exit therapist, my BET. He is a professional PhD. And because you know, I have been running this organization for three decades with my name on the door for 21 years. It was important to prepare me for departure and my staff for departure. So once a month, we did a meeting and prepared ourselves. And I would highly recommend that for any other entrepreneur who founded an organization because they loved the work, not because they were trying to become a corporate mega CEO or something like that, that having a good exit is part of the good life of founding something that you love and doing something that you care about so much. Did you sell it to them or did you just part with it? I created a, a, a slow sale, if you will, so that when they were able to regroup, that they would be able to allow me to recoup some of my investment. But the issue wasn't so much about a sale as it was about a beneficent transfer because I wanted the work to be able to continue. And I'm so proud that it has continued. That sounds really wise. And I'm glad it worked out as well as it sounds like it did. You referenced coming to L.A. and getting involved in politics. That seems to coincide roughly with the election of the former president, Mr. Trump. Is that part and parcel of getting back in or how did that work? Oh, without a doubt. The shock of November 2016 election was just as deafening to me as it was to just about everyone I know and and communicate with. And it, it seemed pretty unthinkable what had happened. I was one of the many people weeping the night of Barack Obama's election and wrongly feeling that this meant that the arc of history was bending toward justice and things were getting way better. And of course, the shock of of the election of the former guy showed, yeah, well, not so fast, right? So the joy of arriving here and actually getting to work early in 2018, well, what were we preparing for in Southern California? We were preparing to have the blue wave, to flip five different congressional seats right here in Southern California that were so crucial to taking the House. And I was so blessed. I became involved with Indivisible. Almost immediately, I I went to a march and I asked everybody, "Okay, who's doing the good work? And many, many people pointed out to me, "Mm, you should go look at Indivisible. So I did and realized that I resonated with their principles and I was really proud to be involved. And I guess the old CEO habits die pretty hard because once I was involved, I found myself on steering committees and then involved with a state Indivisible Group, the California Indivisibles. And in fact, I helped run the summit of Indivisible that brought together 163 different Indivisible leaders from all over California for a really important summit right after the blue wave of 2018. So early in 2019, back in the good old days when we could all be in the same room with each other, we put together a wonderful activist three days worth of of important work. And that was terrific. Once I had become involved with Indivisible and became involved with a national group known as Middle Tier, which was just an informal, not a sanction, but an informal group of Indivisible leaders from all over the United States, we began to see more and more issues that were relevant 
when people were in red states, when they were in blue states, when they were in purple states. And in fact, one of our jobs was to take the blue state energy of California and pour it into red states, places like Georgia, which ended up paying off, of course, when it came time for 2020 and the Georgia runoff, et cetera. After being deeply involved with Indivisible and sitting on steering committees and running some task forces and things like that, then I became involved with Field Team 6, the voter registration organization, because I discovered that our real problem in America wasn't the 81 million who voted for Joe Biden in 2020, and it wasn't the 74 million who voted for the former guy in 2020, although I'm always astounded by the largeness of that number. Our real problem in America is the 84 million who did not vote. That's a much smaller number than it was in prior elections, but it's still way too large. So I realized that we had to do some root cause analysis. And most of the people who are not registered to vote report that they're not registered to vote because nobody ever asked them. So I took on membership in the roundtable, the voluntary management group of Field Team 6 in the national voter registration space there, and discovered that Field Team 6 hadn't identified its category of one. So did a study and learned that, of course, Field Team 6 was partisan voter registration, not that they wouldn't accept a GOP registrant if one came along, but the whole point of Field Team 6 was to register voters who would vote in progressive and blue ways. So I got deeply involved with Field Team 6. And then, oh my gosh, what hit Field Team 6, which used to be a live voter registration group sending people out to primarily college campuses and to other public spaces when the pandemic hit. We couldn't do any of the things we were doing before. And I know you know the Field Team 6 story. You've interviewed Jason Berlin, the founder of Field Team 6. But essentially what we had to do is to help convert Field Team 6 from being, you know, a live, in-person, small, scrappy little organization into a national digital powerhouse. So I brought some techniques to Field Team 6, like social storming which wasn't something that they had done. They hadn't needed to do it previously on social media and also brought other techniques of presentations and other messaging and materials and became really engaged with that. And after a year of work with Field Team 6, one of the early things we did is we created an initiative called Virus Free Voting in the spring of 2020, because if you remember back then, lots of states were balking about absentee ballots and voter drop boxes and all the other things we needed to stay safe so that we could vote before the vaccines became available. So we did virus-free voting and got surprising amount of national uptake and local indivisible and swing left groups found ways to pressure Sometimes the secretaries of state in various states who had more freedom than they were using in order to optimize voting, you know, absentee voting and other methods that didn't require standing in line with other people who also still didn't have a vaccine. So virus-free voting became important. Then in the fall, we were also worried in the middle tier indivisible group, we were also worried about Republican threats of a coup. We knew that Roger Stone had been talking about all summer, just denying the open results. We knew that that wasn't unheard of. We knew that that was the actual threat. So various of us created groups. Here in LA, we created a group called Prilla, Protect the Results in LA, which was a group that was designed to be a rapid response group to deal with the possibility of election denial, even though we thought L.A. wasn't primarily where it would happen, we still felt obligated to be prepared. And we created a video, several of us, Michelle Menire Fowle of Northridge Indivisible and Dwayne Binshadler of Indivisible, then CA33, and I created a video with the help of Field Team 6 videographers and 
others of called 10 Things You Need to Know to Stop a Coup, which was based on a blog post by people who had studied tyranny, people who had studied under people like Timothy Snyder and Ruth Ben-Ghiat and people like that. So that video ended up going viral because it just showed how regular citizens could stop a coup by not pre-obeying and by showing up and by insisting. And it, it quoted the research on how you stop a coup. I'm still so proud of that video. And we played it for group after group after group just in those last few days before and after the election to remind people what we could do. And we so didn't want to have to use it. So, of course, we were right to worry about the coup and we were wrong on the timing because, of course, there we were celebrating the Georgia victory and only one day later, January 6th happened. After we did that and realized, well, we were right about the coup, we were just wrong about the timing, we really looked around and we expected things to come together. As we were in 2021, we were so happy to inaugurate, to get the vaccines distributed, to have things work out. And then we started to see other problems. So here in California, a group of us were really disturbed at the recall of Gavin Newsom. And we kept seeing data that we didn't like and results we didn't like, and we didn't see anything in the grassroots. So we created a new grassroots messaging group and social storming group called Newsom Delivers. And we partnered with lots of people all over the state. And we began social storming and got ourselves to 68 to 70 million impressions per week for the four weeks before the Newsom recall. And once the grassroots got reactivated and all the other things started to work together, he won two to one. Right after that, though, the Virginia situation happened with Terry McAuliffe versus Glenn Youngkin, and that didn't go as well. And, and we took a look at what was the grassroots messaging in Virginia, and we realized the messaging that we had done in the grassroots in California didn't get done in Virginia, in spite of all the good people there who were working so hard. The messaging frame was unhealthy in Virginia. And that's when we began thinking about creating this group, Grassroots Messaging Works. Well, I definitely want to ask you about that. I want to ask you also about this term that you're using called social storming. What exactly is that? Social storming is the act of coordinating how people post, repost, retweet, excerpt, quote, tweet, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok all the usual social media, WhatsApp and, and, and other texting platforms, how people in a coordinated way push a message upward and forward so it's likely to be seen in more people's social feeds. Social storming is not a replacement for canvassing or for phone banking or for other direct voter contact. But one thing that has become very clear in the last few years is that social sites, most especially Twitter, don't necessarily drive regular voter dialogue, but they drive media choices. The people who are online the most are the media. So when media sees things trending, there's a much greater likelihood of coverage. And if media doesn't see things trending, it doesn't. So social storming is how you get lots and lots of people together, teach them the tools of the individual social media sites and the techniques that work the best, and then coordinate the messages that you want to get out there, coordinate under hashtags, do what you can in order to make it possible to just be as organized. I have a little animation on our grassrootsmessagingworks.org site that just talks about, you know, all these arrows pointing in all these chaotic directions. And yet when all these little arrows combine and make one big arrow, it's so disciplined and it's so organized. Social storming is about that. I've talked to a couple people who have built technology or process around what sounds very much like social storming 
Are you familiar with Demcast or a tool called Organize that are in that space? I'm absolutely familiar with and supportive of Demcast. I don't know Organize, so I'll have to look it up after we record this session. But what our perception is, we utterly support Demcast, is that they were the most interested in distribution mechanisms and they did a really good job. And in fact, it was my early work as a volunteer with Demcast where I encountered the tool Speechify, founded by Tudor Mielescu. Oh, yeah. I also had him on the show. Yes. You've talked to Tudor, who is a brilliant guy. And he and his co-founders built wonderful software that, when it's used correctly, takes seven or eight steps out of the process that allows a regular civilian, without necessarily a lot of social media expertise, that allows a regular civilian to participate in social storming instead of having to go through 10 clicks and steps and copy this and grab that and do this other and go over here to this Google Doc and do that other thing. Nope. Speechify is a marvelous, marvelous tool, which we use for everything we do, which streamlines that down to two clicks. So anyone who says, yep, I agree with this and I want to share it with my networks, in two clicks can absolutely do that. So we totally, totally believe in that. And Grassroots Messaging Works always shares any asset we make with Demcast, and we respectfully support all the important hard work that Demcast has been doing. We find ourselves in the same spaces a lot and are so grateful for the work that they do. That's super interesting to me to hear of people who are actually taking advantage of some of those tools that I've sort of heard the founders talk about, but haven't necessarily talked to some of the users. Are there other commercial tools or other technology that you found to be useful in that, in sort of in the work that you've been doing with grassroots messaging and making sure it's heard? Well, it's super important This is not a tool. This is a knowledge base. So no, I don't have a clever piece of software to tell you about. But it's super important from our perspective at Grassroots Messaging Works. In addition to what Demcast supports, we were also interested in a model messaging campaign that used what I call from my old work at Crane Meta Marketing, a meta concept. That is the driving idea And our goal, because we felt like them messaging was all over the place and not reinforcing each other, and in fact, in many cases, undermining each other, too much shouting, not enough agreeing and supporting, we found that it was really, really important to show how to discipline a campaign, to settle on a theme, to use the theme, to exploit the theme, to experiment with it over a long period of time for a good reason. And that's partially really important because of what we saw as our mission at Grassroots Messaging Works, because our mission at Grassroots Messaging Works was absolutely a goal to reframe and to up-level what was available to grassroots people, not what was available to the professionals, to the campaigns, to the paid consultants, all those folks. They all live in the world of TV ad buys and things like that. But what we found is that people out in the grassroots didn't have the tools they need, didn't have things like Speechify helping them use those tools, but also didn't have coherent enough campaigns. And we wanted to reframe because we felt by the time we got to Thanksgiving of 2021 and saw what wasn't happening as it related, it's very different now after the Jan 6 hearings and things like that. But We saw that not enough decisions were being framed according to what we called the binary. To us, the binary was the simple issue of you want democracy or you want authoritarianism. Regardless of what you want to name it, that's the binary. That's what the issues are. And we said too many things like do we get the bipartisan infrastructure bill or do we deal with drug prices and negotiation and, you know, all the numerous wonderful things that people want to do. Too much chowder there, but not enough 
overall, what are we for? What are we after? And first of all, what we're for is we're for democracy and we don't want the faction. We don't want authoritarianism. So early on, what we did long before we settled on our meta concept is that we did a series of positive statements about what we're for, equal justice for all, fair wages for fair work, reproductive rights, equal rights realized, all children free from hunger, reimagined public safety, a livable planet, affordable, accessible health care, college without debt, affordable neighborhoods with great public schools, one person, one vote counted every time. Everyone pays their share. How can you disagree with any of these things, right? It but still we, sounds like a lot of chowder. Well, the list that I just read to you is a year's worth of material. And I will say to you, it is a lot of chowder. Although um, what we did is that we couldn't find a list like that that was stated in the positive. What we could find was, you know, we don't want them to kill Social Security. Right. We don't. But but what we what we do want is equal justice for all and everyone paying their fair share. So stating everything positively, we then turned all that chowder. We distilled it down into a really simple meta concept. And we didn't use the word Dem and we didn't use the word Republican. We used Team Coup versus Team You. And that is simple and that isn't chowder. And it even rhymes, which helps you in the marketing world, a rhyme or another device like that. And the whole point of Team Coup versus Team You was to make it okay for people from a wide variety of economic positions or policy wonkery or whatever to understand that's the binary this time around. The binary is whether we're going to keep our democracy or if we're going to go ahead and let authoritarianism come in from this faction. So that reframing, according to that very, very simple binary of Team Coup or Team U, that's the choice in 22. That helped us get it very clear. When you've reached this part in your exposition of what you're doing, I started to have a questioning of what you were saying going on in my head behind the scenes. I started to, to wonder, how do you know that this messaging works better than many other people's attempts at messaging produced by people who've been in politics forever or other people who've come in out of different kinds of marketing? How do you know that we want to be in a world of binary when things are complicated? How do you know that your conception, you obviously know a lot about what can move people. You've spent a lifetime doing it. But this is one choice competing with lots of others in the world of political marketing, I guess. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about how you think about like why these decisions work and what underlies the, them in a way that could give other people confidence in them. To circle back, when I first became involved in social storming and and helped set it up for Field Team 6. And then they uh, recruited wonderful volunteers who have kept that up now for two years. I began attending every messaging briefing that I could possibly wangle an invitation to. It's gotten to the point that on a good day, there's only two. And on a more difficult day, there might be as many as five meetings about messaging a day. And I am the person who, on behalf of Grassroots Messaging Works, on behalf of Field Team 6, and on behalf of some local Indivisible and other groups, attends all of those sessions, partially because I have the background in opinion research and qualitative and quantitative research that's important. 
the person who attends all those sessions and works to synthesize what's coming through. I would not ever presume that just because I think something works, that it works. And in our case, we're spreading things out through free mechanisms and you can't really trace what happens to them. And you you don't know how far they go until someone sends you a thank you note from some remote situation where you realize that's your work that you did. And that was an important part of this work was going to all these messaging things and seeing many themes keep cropping up. And frankly, Many of the themes that tested the best, that worked the best, and that did the best weren't getting used in the grassroots space. They were going to get used in the paid TV advertising space when the time came. But we said, we need this stuff now. We're working with our volunteers now. We don't want to wait for a year or a year and a half until there's another election. We want to do it now. The second thing is, is that at Grassroots Messaging Works, In our first month, we interviewed five different PhD psychologists from five different strains of psychological understanding. It was really a fascinating process because one of the questions we had is our target is activists. Our target isn't necessarily the ultimate voters because we know that to get at the ultimate voters, there are many other techniques and many other tools in place. But right now, what we're seeing is disconsolate, worried activists who thought we pulled it out in 2020 and surely we're fine now. And of course, with January 6th and so much else happening, the realization, nope, we're not fine now. This is a a long slog, as John Lewis tells us, it goes on. It's a way of life for a lifetime. At any rate, the psychologists taught us several things about why the activists back last Christmas, if you can remember back to then, why they were some of them curled up in almost the fetal position and feeling like, wow, can I take this? How much more can I handle this? And the answer that we learned from the psychologists is that you've got fight, flight, or freeze, and they have a fourth F called fawn, and that when people are under repeated stressors, where there's cognitive dissonance between what they believed was true versus what they're seeing with their own eyes, that people will often revert to the situation. And then they taught us that there were several things that we had to do to help people get out of the fight, flight, or freeze state and return to a healthier state of mind so they felt empowered to act. The first thing was to say, I see you, I see your pain, you're not alone. So too many activists in the pandemic were sitting at home feeling too lonely in their worries and in their fears. The second thing the psychologist told us we had to do is you have to shine a light on the pathway out. Anytime a person is stuck in fight, flight, or freeze, they can't see the pathway out because that's not what Mother Nature is teaching them to do. Mother Nature is saying, only look at what's right in front of your nose and deal with that. This is an emergency. So our job was to shine a light on the pathway out. And then the next thing that these five PhD psychologists told us in one way or another was, and then physically, if you can, and remotely, if you can't, You literally lock arms with that person and say, here, let's take the first few steps together to get on the pathway out of this negative place and back to a more hopeful place. So we made a video. In the video, we used the system that we had learned from Anat Shanker Osorio and the Way to Win team and all the people who are doing the most sophisticated and the best research messaging which is simply called the three V's. Have you heard of the three V's, Nathaniel? I believe I have, but why don't you explain? Awesome, awesome. I have, I have talked to Anod and I have talked to Way to Win, and so I'm a little bit aware of, of their work, but, tell, but explain. And they're absolutely terrific. The thing I love about the three V's, because there are plenty of people with PhDs who can frame things academically, but I adore it when people can get it down to little sound bites, right? 
So the three V's are, nope, we don't start a message with what we're against. We start a message with what we're for that our audience is also for. And that is called, in Anat's language, the shared value. And oh, did I love this when I first ran across the three V's several years ago, because it was values-based. Didn't it just resonate for me completely? Yes, it did. So you start with a shared value. We all want our children to grow up feeling safe and loved. And then next, you have to pivot to the villain. And you have to say what the villain's motivation is. But Republicans are defunding our schools and allowing guns to proliferate so that children are not necessarily safe. And they're doing this for a profit motive or a political motive, et cetera. And then you immediately pivot to the vision of what life can be like if we prevent the villain from carrying out their plan on what it would look like to have children who feel safe and loved and who can thrive in education, for instance. So the three V's, that was a thing when I was involved with scripts for phone banking and scripts for postcarding and scripts for tweets on Speechify and anything else, converting people from their former system, which was to open with a complaint often, to starting with the shared value and only then going to the fly in the ointment, you know, the preventer of the value, the villain, and then pivoting back to the vision. So your ending message. And by the way, you're doing this with, you know, four sentences. You don't have much space with 280 characters in Twitter. You have more language in some other modes. So we created a beautiful video that people still talk about, I'm proud to say, and is on our homepage at grassrootsmessagingworks.org called We the People, which starts with the shared value. This is remember how we felt on January 5th. You know, not only had Biden won the election, but we had two new senators coming from Georgia. And then we pivot to the villain. But then on January 6th, and we talk about the MAGA cult that tried to carry out this insurrection, this coup. And then we go back and use the research that Michael Podhortzer does such a brilliant job of sharing. And I've been an admirer sitting at his virtual feet for several years now, attending all of his briefings. He's brilliant. But listening to the fact that Hello, this faction has always been with us. They were enslavers who prevented our constitution from counting human beings the way one would have wanted. They they were the Confederates in the Civil War. They were the Jim Crow people who then morphed into the KKK people, and then they became the Dixiecrats. And now, after they were the Tea Party, they became the MAGA cult and they don't stand for what we stand for. So we have a section of our little three and a half minute video that talks about that. And then we pivot to the vision because we say we need to reactivate those 81 million who did come out and vote for freedom and voted against authoritarianism in 2020. We need to reactivate the 81 million We need to activate the 7 million young people who are coming of age, getting ready to vote for the first time in the midterm election. And then, of course, what we know is that those non-voters, those 84 million non-voters, we know that research shows that two-thirds of them agree with us. We are the massive, massive majority. That's why the other side requires voter suppression and dirty tricks to get their way, because with just regular majority rule, they wouldn't get their way. So we made that video even before we created Team Coup versus Team U, because our job, as we saw it, was to create hope and to create a path back for activists who were disconsolate and fearful and worried. So what we did is we shared that video all around the country with indivisible groups and swing left groups and other informal groups, anyone who wanted to see it. And people would say, oh, this pulled the heartstrings. This reminded me why I do this. 
And it got us ready to get back to work with some messaging. And that was an important moment to publish that video. I like the idea of being a resource shop for grassroots. It strikes me as a good idea. Can you give me a sense of sort of how people are responding to your work and how widely you're getting used and what your aspirations are? One of the things that's true in in social media, free media, as opposed to the paid media that, you know, the consultants class can and must do is that you have much less control and you don't even really have good metrics. So we're very, very proud of how many different venues we see our work get into, but we've had to be careful, unlike a corporation might, not to judge ourselves on false metrics that may or may not work. I'm so proud of the social storming that gets done by, say, Field Team 6 hitting 70 million impressions a week on Twitter alone. You can't count on Facebook and other things, so you have to rely on Twitter. Back when mm, people were really proud to say they were getting to 12 or 13 million, it's really amazing. I now operate as part of another national social storming crew that can get things up to 280 million impressions in a single four or five hour segment of time when it's possible. The other way, though, I would use the January 6th committee hearings as an example. Let's back up and talk for a second about the four lanes of messaging, which relates exactly to your question. In in our belief, we, we had to do an analysis, you know, scan the environment and figure out, well, what's already working? And we realized that there were four lanes of messaging on the Dem side that don't have nearly as much overlap as one might think and absolutely do not have the cross connections that you see on the other side where there's this ironclad network with the Fox News and all, all the other right wing sources doing doing the bidding of a hierarchical system. In our informal system, we found that most of the money is spent, almost all of the money is spent in the candidate lane. Well, of course it is, and it should be. We support that. But you know what's interesting? The job of the candidate is to spend the money that they raise to get themselves elected as well they should. And oh, wow, please, Tim Ryan, Please, all all the other candidates who are running for these open slots, we want them all to get elected. We want them to use their money as they can. But that's where most of the money is. And those messages can't be about democracy versus authoritarianism. They have to be much more specific, and much more localized to what the candidate needs to do in their lane. So the second lane is the party lane. And of course, Everybody assumes a centralization and a huge budget and all sorts of things, none of which seems to be true about the Democratic Party. It's a very loose confederation as opposed to an ironclad hierarchical group. And frankly, there's not a lot of money there. The DCCC and the DSCC, the Congress committees, those are candidate monies. Those aren't party monies. Okay, so there's an, a third lane of messaging, and that's the issue groups. So if you're Planned Parenthood, or if you're the Sunrise Movement of young people who want a livable planet, or if you're any other issue group, your job is to raise that money, but then you need to spend that money on your issue. That's what your donors gave you that money to do. So we said, whose job is it to defend de democracy? And we became conscious that, well, the answer is, of course, it's going to have to be the grassroots. So the good news about the grassroots is there are more of us than there are of anybody else anywhere. And the bad news about the grassroots is there's not particularly coordinated money. So what we knew we had to do is to make everything free and easy to get and accessible. And we had to send it out into the universe, hand it to people 
and just will for it to do its best. And unlike all those years of my work where I could follow the metrics of how well a campaign was doing on an almost daily basis and certainly on a weekly basis, in this case, as long as we don't want to pay too much attention to the polar coaster, as Simon Rosenberg calls it, right, because that's not healthy, what we need to do is we need to understand we're going to have our accounting and it's going to be November 8th of 2022, and it's going to be any election day after that. So essentially what we're trying to do is to make assets available. When the hearings happened, the January 6th hearings began, we came to an understanding because I was attending three or four briefings a week with the people who are worried, you know, the not above the law coalition and the various justice and judiciary oriented groups, et cetera, public citizen, common cause, all the good guys who are involved in trying to support what those are doing. What I discovered is almost all of them had a a wonkier, more lawyerly look at what was going on, which was perfectly appropriate considering the legal issues involved. But it wasn't generating material that the grassroots could use. So what we did is we created a series of assets where we cut up our video into small portions to use when the hearings first debuted in early June. And then as the hearings began to accumulate more and more damnable, frightening info about culpability and what had really been going on, we created a suite of assets called the Crimes of Team Coup. And we simplified them down to five word phrases or less because we knew that we had to provide our grassroots activists who needed to be able to tell their local people and their local groups, all right, what is it we're objecting to here again and not have a complicated policy oriented thing, but to have a very, very simple statement. These Trumpist Republicans, these MAGA people planned promoted and paid for an attempt to overthrow a free and fair election. It needed to get that simple or even simpler. So that's an example of how we've tried to serve the needs of grassroots activists who want healthier, smoother, more useful ways to express things. We did the same called Our Families, Our Choice, for when the Roe v. Wade decision came down from SCOTUS. Once again, our families, our choice is positive framing um, that orients about what's good about reproductive freedom, that it is our family. So we're going to choose when and with whom and how to start or to grow our families. So once again, that's positive framing. So we created that. We did that on gun violence after Uvalde, et cetera. So that's an example of how we try and and serve the population that use our resources. It certainly sounds like you've found a fit for yourself in this <laughs> second career. Is there a question I should have asked you about it that I failed to? The the one question that I used to ponder and then got over it was, why aren't we already doing this better? And I feel that in the end, part of it, some of the complications that come out of the four lanes of messaging and, you know, the lack of overlap and not enough early coordination uh, among those in spite of the wonderful people at things like Way to Win and ASO Communications and Pod Horsers Group, the research collaborative, people like that. The other thing that I think that's important is we do it not as well as we could because we're so passionate and we love our democracy so much. And so people get on and they accidentally amplify the bad stuff instead of amplifying the good stuff, the positive framing, the positive messaging. And so we try and set the tone with that. We try and influence the scripting and the shaping and et cetera. But we are getting better. I'm seeing much better coordination 
now America understands as a result of the hearings and some other movement, America understands the binary. So it's no longer the problem of grassroots messaging work to hand that over to the activists who we consider our free customers. Now, many, many more people have that understanding. So I'm gratified. I'm on pins and needles like everybody else about what will happen in elections. But I know that in the end, there are more of us who believe in an inclusive, multiracial, multicultural, multi-everything future for our country. And that eventually the arc of history will bend toward justice. And I just hope we can continue to play our small part. Boy, I hope you're right about that. I don't think there's anything in history that says things have to get better. But if they do, it's the work of people like you uh, and, and many other people who are out there trying to make it happen. That's what makes the difference. And I so, want to absolutely thank my fellow team members. I haven't quoted their names. Some of them live in other parts of the country where it's not so welcome. But my, my co-lead is a rocket scientist at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, if you can believe that. Another member of our committee is a former Apple quality control engineer. Another member is a former art director at Hallmark who really understands the Midwest well. We have a former flamenco dancer who understands websites and uploading better than anybody you've ever met. We have a a person who understands data science and archiving. We have a really unique team and Every single person on that team has contributed so much toward this work. And we have a wonderful graphic designer. And yes, we raised enough money in order to compensate her, not what she's worth. But we think it's really important to pay attention to visual issues. So you will see that in our work as well. Patty, it's super fun to talk to you. I'm glad that you're putting your energy into this. Anything else you want to say? Oh, I just want to thank my son who contributed almost a quarter million dollars worth of services in that first video that we made and the other volunteers who helped us make a second video and do so many other things. So Judson Crane, Christian Pulfer, Founder Music, also Treebird Branding back in Atlanta, who helped us with our original Team Coup versus Team U, and so many other people. I can't even mention them. I'm just, I'm just so blessed with people who are willing to just do such important work. Yeah. Awesome. That was Patty Crane. She's at grassrootsmessagingworks.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.